It's a real pleasure to be with you this morning. You've already prayed for me before the service. You've prayed for this word to come um, from my lips, from God's own word. Um, And for that, I appreciate, I'm, I'm thankful for all the prayers that come before it because we're dependent on the spirit, dependent on God himself to open up our ears to hear and especially our hearts to behold Jesus. And so as we look to behold Jesus this morning, I'm going to begin with asking a question, and the question is this, what possessed St. Patrick, the patron saint of Ireland, who was actually British from England, he's English, what possessed him to return to Ireland after being enslaved there? You might not know this, but the story of St. Patrick is that he was a teenager and he was captured by pirates from England, taken to Ireland and enslaved there for five years throughout his teenage years until he was about 22 before he escaped to go back to his home and then he returned to Ireland to preach the gospel and now is known as the patriot saint of Ireland, the very people, the Irish who had enslaved him. And I can imagine there's all kinds of wounds that were created by this, right? All kinds of developmental psychological, physical, you name it. The wounds that he carried were enormous. And what possessed him to carry those wounds back to Ireland when he didn't have to? It might sound like a nightmare to some of us, but it actually sounds pretty good at the same time. To be that free, to be that generous, to have that much courage with your wounds. Because here's the other option. If we're not courageous with our wounds, they fester. And they come out on the people we love, let alone the people that we don't. The people that we're trying to love on our streets and our neighborhoods at work. Uh, My three-year-old, he's with us today. He does what I do when I'm hurt, and I realize this. It's just a little more obvious in a three-year-old who doesn't have the wherewithal to, to withhold anything. When he's wounded, it doesn't matter if someone did it to him. It doesn't matter if he did it to himself. If he stubs his toe or falls down, the first thing he does when he gets up, I mean, you can see the anger dripping off of him, right? And he yells at you, and he actually, if you get close enough, he'll try to hit you because of his wounds. He doesn't know what to do with them. He just knows that he's mad. And it's a picture of us that, you know, when somebody criticizes us and we respond with, who are they to say that about me? Or who are they to say that to me? Or why did she look at me like that? It's our wounds coming up, wounds from the past, wounds from the present. And being wounded, it's part and parcel of life as a human. We can't walk through a day, we can't walk through life without wounds, big and small. And if you're in school and and you have siblings at home, you know that even little things wound you. Words wound you. You wound others with your words. And it comes out when you're defensive, when you're angry, when you feel insecure and you have you're afraid. They, all those things stem from wounds. They're reactions to wounds in your life. But thankfully, our creator God is not aloof to this part of our life, this huge part of our life that actually threatens to dominate our lives and, and threatens to make us live out of those wounds. Our God notices, and in fact, he hates the wounds that we have. He grieves them, and he endeavors to do something about them. 
And what we're going to find out from this text is that God in the person of Jesus, who's revealed to us, the very God of our creation revealed to us in flesh, in Jesus, lays out a plan not just to heal those wounds, so that at best the world will tell you, and the people around you, the, the best common wisdom will say, you need to be healed of those wounds, or at best forget them. Or at worst forget them, but at best heal them. But God goes beyond that, and he doesn't just heal our wounds. You'll see in this passage that he redeems them. God is not in the business of making bad things neutral things. If you watch throughout the scriptures from Genesis on, God does it over and over. He takes what is meant for evil and turns it into good. And so that wounds which threaten to define us actually become not just wiped away, but they become monuments to God's grace and goodness in our lives. And so let's look together at our passage. And we'll take in order these two points. That God does not just heal us. That's the first point. God heals us, but he goes beyond that and he redeems us. And so not only does he heal our wounds, he makes our wounds things that heal the world and heal other people. He puts them to work. And so let's take up God heals us first before he makes us those who are healing people with our wounds. We see this play out with Thomas in our passage we see him respond. Thomas, in verse 24, who's one of the 12 disciples, he was not with Jesus when he came the first time, which is in verses 19 through 23. And so he says to them, and you can tell he's wounded. You can tell there's something going on because of the way he responds. The visceral response is this, in verse 25. They said, we have seen the Lord. And he says, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Pretty strong statement for somebody who has followed Jesus and given his life up for Jesus because Jesus gave it up for him. To understand his, why he is so responsive to that, why he's so angry, basically why he's so wounded, you have to walk in his shoes for a minute. We have 19 chapters of John before this, and we hear about what Jesus has been up to and what life has been like for Thomas. In this passage, we have these disciples referred to, the 12 of them in particular. Um, it also is a word that describes not just those 12 disciples, but a disciple is anyone who recognizes Jesus as the Father of creation, God the Father, and looks to him for salvation. They are disciples of Jesus. But he was one of the 12 disciples, meaning the closest people to Jesus. And when Jesus gathered these particular 12, he didn't gather just any 12 that would follow him. He called these particular 12 and said, you are coming with me. And they had a choice. But it didn't feel much like a choice because they were so drawn to Jesus that when he said, you're coming with me, you could see that they just dropped their nets. Like which one of you would just lock up your business or even leave it unlocked? Just walk out the door and follow Jesus and just leave it. This is what the disciples did. This is what Thomas did. He just left his old life and started following Jesus with no regard for his old life at all. His sustenance, nothing but Jesus. And so this is the Jesus he's following is the one who called him and he felt like there was nothing else he would ever do but follow him. Jesus did things that no human had ever done before. He was human for sure, but he had these inexplicable qualities to know what everyone was thinking all the time. To have the wisdom to respond with either a gentle word 
or what seemed like a harsh word at just the right moments. He had the ability to touch people who needed it at just the right time. And above all else, he was always thinking about other people. And being in his very presence was undoing because he's thinking about you. He's different than everyone else who's thinking about themselves. And some people, when he was thinking about you and he knew everything about you, it was undoing. And they didn't want anything to do with it. And so a group of these people were called the Pharisees, who they saw that Jesus had this wisdom and he had this, in, these inexplicable qualities, but they, they didn't want to be seen. And they raged against him. But then you had this other group of people, the disciples, Thomas being one of them, who when they were seen and they saw Jesus knew everything about them, all the worst things too, yet he said, come follow me. There's that group of people who didn't rage, but in their deepest fear of being known and seen, they also felt every desire to be known was fulfilled. And so here is Thomas following with these other disciples, literally no other sustenance in the world except what Jesus gives them directly. They had no concept of Jesus dying. In fact, when Peter was... Uh, when Peter heard Jesus say, I'm going to die, Peter was so sure that he was right theologically that he rebuked Jesus. Peter doesn't rebuke Jesus about everything. He rebuked Jesus about this one thing. Because God couldn't die, it was blasphemy, he thought, for Jesus to say he was going to die. And so Peter, along with Thomas, they were committed to this Jesus thinking that he would be the king of Israel. He would be the fulfillment of all things and he would never go away. There'd be a forever kingdom like he promised in David and 2 Kings or 2 Samuel. But then the unthinkable happened. Jesus was captured, right? And he knew that Jesus could walk away. He's already watched him. There's this crowd of people with pitchforks pushing Jesus toward a cliff and Jesus walks through them and they have no idea where Jesus went. He can walk away if he wanted to, but he didn't walk away. He didn't walk away when they started driving the nails through his feet and through his wrists. And then the worst, the ultimate worst happened. They mocked him and they said, why don't you come down there like the sovereign God that you are? You can do anything you want. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to stay here. And then he dies. And all the disciples watch it. And they are so afraid that they're hiding behind locked doors. Do you see... If you turn back in your bulletin in verses 19 through 21, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked for the disciples were for the fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. They were afraid because Jesus had actually died. It had been three days since he died, and they're still locked away, still afraid. And we know the fears were running deep because we know what Jesus said to them twice in verses 19 through 23. He says to them, peace. Peace be with you. And then again a verse later, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Jesus doesn't offer peace unless the problem was that they had no peace. All they had were fear. All they had were wounds. Thomas was the unfortunate one, it seems, to have not been there in verse 24. He was not there when everybody else was there. And they saw him, and they told him, we saw him. But he said, no way. 
I'm not falling for it again. I fell for Jesus once, I'm not going to do it again. He felt betrayed, and, and his, his, he was afraid it was going to happen again. He was not going to be made to be a fool. So he went on and said to this, which he would never say to Jesus' face, right? Because we see what he says to Jesus' face after. But he would never say this, unless I see his hands and the mark of his nails and the place my finger into the mark of his, the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Who would say that about the sovereign God? Unless I stick my fingers in his wounds, I will never believe. He's a hurt man, a wounded man. And Jesus meets him. And when Jesus meets him in our passage, Jesus is merciful. Jesus has eyes not on himself like the rest of us. He has eyes on Thomas. And he has mercy on Thomas. He knows Thomas' thoughts. He knows his needs. And so that's why Jesus looks at him. And he says to him, after he said it twice to the disciples, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You can hear that as a harsh rebuke. The sovereign God says to Thomas, go ahead, put your hands in my fresh wounds so that you'll believe. He does exactly what Thomas needs to believe. With our wounds, we externalize them and we push them on others. Jesus only has eyes for others, and so when he has wounds, he doesn't take it out on others. He knows what his wounds were for. He took on the wounds willingly, never thinking about himself, not for a moment, but only for those he loved. He had eyes for Thomas. He has eyes for you. In his wounds, his eyes were out, not in. And Jesus gives Thomas exactly what he needs. He meets him with his own wounds to heal Thomas's, to heal ours. Basically, this is what Thomas is hearing. That's what we need to hear. It's going to be okay. I'm here, Jesus says. And these wounds, which once told the story of hopelessness for Thomas and us, because God has been killed, now tell the story of redemption, that God has been resurrected and his people with him. And now these wounds of Jesus become the most, a monument to the most beautiful story ever told. Our daughter Zoe is with us. And she doesn't know I'm going to tell the story. I should have told her beforehand. Uh, when she was two, just turning two, she's 22 months old, and uh, she was inexplicably sick. She had a burn on her arm, and we took her to the emergency room, and it was, uh, it was from boiling water. And um, they said, actually, it looks bad, and it's going to be painful, but it's going to be okay. It's, you know, two layers of skin, it'll grow back. And then she, we got her home, but she just got sicker and sicker, and so we kept taking her back, and they kept being like, she's fine, she's just need some, you know, she may be a little dehydrated. And by the third time we went back, they, they finally was like, fine, she's dehydrated enough, we'll try to get, we'll, you know, we'll put an IV in. They were just frustrated with us for going back and being worried parents. This is our, our first daughter. And um, this time when they tried to put an a IV in, they couldn't, they couldn't get into the, the vein because so, she was so dehydrated, her, 
her veins were flat. And so that was our first sign that something was very wrong. And so we thought maybe just dehydration. But as soon as they drew some blood, after it took hours and hours to finally get a needle in and get some blood drawn, that's when the whole hospital rushed into our room. And it was this nightmare. This is like made-for-TV nightmare where everyone's rushing to the room and they rush her off to this ICU unit and the whole hospital was like trying to save her life all of a sudden. And for the next 48 hours, we basically were told her organs are failing. She has sepsis, which is an infection of the blood. There's nothing we can do except wait and watch. To the point where one night my wife was sitting in the room. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. And our young doctor, who was very capable, had a two-year-old at home as well. And she came into the room and didn't know anyone had been there. And she put her head down on the crib where Zoe was laying and started weeping. And a nurse rushed in because she heard it and said, the mother's here. And she looked up at Kayla and said, there's nothing we can do. And so we're living in this reality of her dying. And in, in, in wonderful, beautiful ways, you can ask us about it sometime, God literally does a miracle. The next night we wake up in the morning and the doctor wonders why we're so sad because there's nothing wrong with her. He's like, she's going to be fine. I don't know why why you're crying. Different doctor than the first one. And so God resurrects her from the dead. She's about to die. Her fingers, her toes, everything was, the blood was concentrated at the center of her body and so she had basically gangrene in her fingers and toes where after her life was saved, we thought we're going to have to cut off her feet and her, her hands. We're just going to see how much needs to be cut off. And God resurrected those two, and life came back into dead fingers and dead toes. An unbelievable story of redemption. And now Zoe has nothing but on her arm where there was a burn, and it was supposed to heal because of her body trying to save her organs and cutting off blood to the rest of her body. That became a third-degree burn, and so she has a scar on her arm that she's looking at right now. And we were at church like six months later and uh, another little girl who, you know, doesn't know what not to say. And so she goes, ew, what's that on your arm? And I saw Zoe like tug for the first time, like a four-year-old trying to like three, she's like three years old, trying to tug on her sleeve to like cover her arm up, right? We're like, oh man, we've got to teach her what this means to us. Like this is an Ebenezer, which in the Old Testament is, is this monument to God's redemption, and so to this day, if you ask her, her friends ask her in school, her teachers ask her, and she'll tell you what it means. It means God saves. That's what God's doing with our wounds. Things that threatened our life, our sin, the sin of others, the things that threaten us, God has saved us from, and there's still the mark of sin in our lives. But it's the mark of God's redemption. That he's not only covered our sin, but he's laying on top of us righteousness. And so those scars and wounds that we carry, they actually become redemption, a sign to redemption. And people are healed through them. I tell my students this all the time, that more people come to faith through our weakness and needing Jesus because they might need Jesus too than doing all the things just right. It's not our righteousness that attracts them. It's our need for Jesus and the way he heals us. Our healed wounds tell a story. Thomas's cynicism was healed. And he becomes, and I, I would guess proudly so, or gladly so, the person through whom many doubters believe. You might hear people still use the phrase, he's a doubting Thomas. 
Thomas wears the moniker gladly. Do you see him melt before Jesus after this? Thomas answered him. You know the boldness he was saying, unless I touch him, unless I put my fingers in his wounds, I don't believe it. And he says in verse 28, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Meaning us. We're the ones who didn't get to see like Thomas did. And we're believing because we have this story, this real story of a real Jesus with real Thomas. And we can read it and believe because of it. Thomas becomes us. He becomes the sign by which many will believe. The passage actually goes on in verse 31. And it says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This story was written down. Thomas's story was told so that we might have life and our neighbors too. We're all cynical about lots of things. Your neighbors are too. But you're healed. Jesus' healed body tells the story of redemption. And then it tells the story of redemption through you. Do you see what they say in verse 19? Or verse 23? Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus has given his people, the church gathered, the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of extending forgiveness so people see it and might believe. God heals through our wounds. When we extend forgiveness, people turn to the forgiveness of God. If we can extend as sinners, then how much more God? The Bible goes on after this to tell 40 more days of Jesus walking around and telling stories and doing amazing things. And then he eventually gives them the Holy Spirit to be among us and with us. And the mission isn't for him to just heal people's wounds. His mission is to extend the good news of the gospel so that those wounds might tell a story of God's great redemption. And what he does is he gives us this gift to be Jesus' presence in the world and in our neighborhoods. Um, recently, we, this was a couple years ago, we... We've invited people over to our house since a couple years ago, but uh, it was Halloween a few years ago, and we had our neighbors over, and we, then we, had, we invited some more people, and they all said yes, and they came over, and so people were just longing for community, and we were meeting outside during the, the pandemic so that people were more comfortable, and um, all these people kept, these strangers kept saying yes to us and hanging out at our house in our backyard, and my wife was amazed by it. She's like, I don't, she asked her friend Elizabeth, she's, I don't, I don't know why these people come. Like, don't they have families and friends and lives to, to that are full. And her friend faithfully stops her and says, you don't understand the presence you have in people's lives. Because she's reflecting the presence of Jesus in her life and in our life. Why is it amazing to us that people actually want to be around Christians, around us, when that's the very reason we're believers, because others did the same for us. The healed people in the world invited us in, and then invited us to taste of the grace of Jesus. 
Why are we surprised others long for that and others want that? We have something distinct as the church that the world doesn't have. They want it. They don't know they want it. They're searching for it in other things. They don't know where to get it. Jerry Sitzer, some of you may have read this book. Um, It became popular a few years ago when it came out, uh, Grace Disguised. And it tells a terrible story. It begins with a terrible story, and that's why it's called a Grace Disguised, because it doesn't seem like grace at all. And he was traveling out in in the west where the roads are wide open and, and it's very rural, and they were going pretty fast, and a drunk driver hit their car. And he lost his three generations of women in his family. All the women in his family, his, his daughters, his wife, his mother, all in one accident. And he told the story, and he wrote down the story for God's people. And, he's, and he begins, he said, if I could take it back, if I could undo this, would I? Yes. I don't care what I've learned. I don't care about anybody. I just, I want my family back. But he said, that is not antithetical to the idea that God was gracious to me in this that it was painful but he's seen more people come to faith through that story and through his pain than he ever did before that by anything good he's done in their life he learned that his suffering was not for himself but for the redemption of the world it wasn't not for him but it was for more than him And Jesus had him in the midst of it. The point is this. Jesus doesn't cover our wounds. Jerry will carry those wounds with him forever. That sadness will go with him through the rest of his life. But the scars they create, they tell a story. They tell a story of redemption. Where once there was pain and destruction, now there's glory and goodness and all the mercy and goodness of Jesus to us. Jesus could not be more perfect in his resurrected body. He is the picture of of full humanity as it's meant to be. And he is in his resurrected final body the way it will always be. And he has holes in his hands and in his side. Those wounds haven't been taken away. They've been healed, but they've been redeemed. They are pictures of redemption. And so are ours through Jesus. The path of redemption has been laid out for us. The only way to heal from wounds isn't to look in, it's to look up at Jesus. We're not designed to look in. And we'll get lost in a pit of despair if we focus on ourselves. And we can't focus on ourselves unless God gives us the grace not to. So we turn to him and look to him. The longer we look at him, maybe the less we look at ourselves. And maybe the more we look at our neighbors. Here's the deal. If you look to your own needs, you're going to run into a world that doesn't look out for your needs. It's, become, it's going to become very frustrating if it isn't already. Because people aren't going to look out for you like you are. And so the world's going to feel against you. No love is ever going to be enough. No respect, no friendship, no church, no pastor, no music, no child. No God is ever going to be enough for you if you're looking to be fulfilled. It won't meet your needs and it'll hurt you. And you'll carry those wounds unless you turn to Jesus.
Jesus is enough. And he'll heal your wounds, but not only that, he'll redeem your wounds. You'll still wear them, but there'll be signs to his resurrection. I'll share this last word picture. Have, have any of you heard of kintsugi? It's, a, it's an art in Japan. And um, I'll, I'll give some background to it, but I met a guy um, that some of you might even know, but he's um, in this area, in the Harrisburg area, and in Hershey, actually. And he started working for a new company, and he was pretty high up, and this was a, I mean, this is like a Google-type company. And they sent him out to Japan to do this project with some vice presidents, and he was their medical uh, um, expert. And so he knows tech and he knows the medical field and he is designing Google tech for medical field. And so it's a very prestigious job. Um, and so he goes over with these vice presidents and they pull, they call him as soon as he gets to this really nice hotel and they, um, they say, actually come downstairs and he gets in this limousine and they hand him this book of all these pictures of people and names of these Japanese folks. And he says, what's going on? And they said, well, we have a really important meeting and you're the highest ranking Google official we have in um, anywhere near Japan, and uh, the other guys couldn't make it. And so, like, the first two weeks on the job, he's sent to this really important meeting where he has to host this um, dinner, and w- the limousine ends up pulling up to the Imperial Palace. And this is how important the Imperial Palace is. When he gets there and he sits down for dinner, there's a Japanese man sitting next to him who, when they sit down, the man starts weeping. And this very gentle, kind Christian man that, that I know, he looks at him and he, he asks him I, through an interpreter, I see that you have tears. Like, where are they coming from? And the guy said, uh, I just never thought I would ever make it here, that I'd ever get to sit in the imperial palace. Like, it's the height of decadence. It's the height of honor. And at the height of honor is this, this uh, what's the name for him? The, the tea master. He's one of the most honorable figures there, and so he's serving tea, and everybody is very, uh, very honoring of him. And at the height of this tea are these teacups that are beautiful, but they're, they're broken. They have these cracks all in them. And so these old, brittle, broken pieces. And so you think the height of all the opulence of all Japan in the Imperial Palace is this teacup, and they're broken. And so he asked about it. He's like, what, what's, what's with the broken cups, right? Well, these broken cups, they, they're these ancient tea cups that you keep forever, and as they break, because they're so brittle that they break all the time, and when you glue them back together, you glue them back together with gold. And so these cups are interlaced with all these cracks filled with gold. And so they tell the story of all the people who have come before them. They tell the story of, you know, Japan's um, greatness and honor. That's what Jesus is doing with our wounds. He's overlaying them with gold. They're not, they don't disappear. We wear them in sometimes very ugly wounds. But he's making them something beautiful that tell a story. They tell the story of the redemption that we have in Jesus from our selfishness, our sin. And it gives hope for all who see it if we tell them the story. Our wounds always point to Jesus's. Let me pray for us.